Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. Thanks again for joining me today. As we noted in our piece last week, written by a member of our fixed income team, the equity markets have been buffeted by the sharp increase in bond yields over the last several weeks. And we can attribute these moves higher to the fears of inflation. So let's talk a little bit about what's driving these fears. It's really a combination of factors, but it's important to understand why they are all coming together now to create this short-term volatility and this rapid increase from a relative standpoint in bond yields. First and foremost, monetary policy. The Fed has continued to be incredibly accommodative over the course of the last year. So if we go back to the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, a number of the measures that the Fed put in place in order to provide needed liquidity to the financial system were sort of never before seen programs. Um, And many of these programs persisted for several years following the recession. Um, And the Fed only started to tighten monetary policy over the last couple of years prior to the pandemic. And so a lot of the things that the Fed has done this year or in this last 12 months and and through um, early 2021 have really been a continuation of some of the programs that they utilized in the great financial crisis, as well as some new programs that were added that were more specifically geared towards uh, the pandemic crisis that we were facing last year. Um, But the magnitude of the amount of stimulus is significantly higher than it was previously. And so one of the arguments that are being made by economists is that although we were anticipating inflation, um, given the Fed's quantitative easing programs after the GFC, we're more likely to get it from this particular period just because of the sheer magnitude of the intervention from the Fed. And that intervention is unlikely to change meaningfully over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. There is likely to be a a tapering of bond purchases. And as you remember, if you go back to 2013 and we talk about the taper tantrum, that was really what created a lot of concern in the equity market about, you know, the potential pullback of the punch bowl um, from a liquidity perspective when the Fed stopped buying or threatened to stop buying bonds in the open market. Uh, We could start to see that taper as, as soon as the end of this year. But we do not anticipate that there will be a significant increase in interest rates. And so therefore, um, this sort of free money or cheap money paradigm is going to persist, um, at least for the foreseeable future. Another factor that economists and market pundits are pointing to as a driver of inflation is the savings rate here in the United States. So with the changing spending patterns as a result of the pandemic, um, for many people who were able to keep their jobs, work from home, um, and, you know, sort of continue their uh, normalized earnings um, in this environment without potentially spending as much, um, just given particularly the shift to lifestyle spend that we've experienced here in the United States over the last several years, and the fact that a lot of our spending is services-based spending, there is a significant amount of cash that has been built up on consumer balance sheets. If you go back to, again, 2008, 2009, 
um, it was a very different environment where homeowners were utilizing their um, houses to uh, lever up, to take out debt, to purchase other things. And so a lot of the consumer spend came ahead of that recession. And so post-recession, American consumers really used those several years, in fact, to build up their savings. And so the unleash of consumer demand from an improving economy took several years. Today, um, we're sitting on the precipice of reopening in states that are not reopened now and just, you know, wider normalization of the economy here in the U.S. And that is anticipated to increase uh, the amount of consumer spending essentially overnight in the back half of this year, leading to some inflationary pressures. The final aspect of you know what's driving these inflationary fears and and probably the most notable one is the massive amount of fiscal stimulus that's been poured into the economy over the last 12 months if we go back we had um we've had several packages most notably the cares act but also the supplemental package in december and now um coming down with uh you know a 1.9 trillion dollar package from washington much more um, than was what 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 was initially anticipated or expected. Um, this this bill was really expected to be narrowed significantly. Um, you know, if we go back to sort of the beginning of the negotiations on this on this particular COVID nineteen package, um, it was anticipated that the Republican uh, caucus was coming to the table with somewhere around five hundred to six hundred billion. That they would we would probably end up somewhere in the middle. Uh, the reality is, is that, you know, this is such a significant stimulus. Um, and really, a lot of it is in the form of cash payments to uh, American consumers, as well as continued support for the unemployed, which creates some insulation in, in terms of, of any residual uh, pressure on consumer spending, at least over the next couple of months. And so you couple that with this really high savings rate already. And you think about this infusion of cash directly into the economy, essentially at the tipping point where consumers are going to have the opportunity to go out and spend that money. Um, and it certainly speaks to not only you know inflationary pressures in terms of goods and services, but you also start to think about things like asset inflation um, in the equity markets, for instance. So again, going back to you know, the comparison uh, to 2008 and 2009, I think this fiscal stimulus aspect is probably the most important thing. So if we go back over the last decade, we never ended up seeing the inflation that everyone feared coming out of the GFC. We didn't see inflation that was caused by the Fed's injection, into, and not just the Fed, mind you, the Bank of England, um, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. where you where you actually did see inflation was in China, um, and you know that's a that's a story for for another day. But what you did not see post GFC was you did not see a massive fiscal stimulus package. And interestingly, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen seems incredibly keyed in on this particular aspect because it is the view of many economists that the slow pace of the recovery here in the United States 
was wholly or at least largely in part to the fact that we did not have meaningful fiscal stimulus um, to supplement or complement the monetary stimulus that we had um, in 2009. And so that is why, you know, perhaps there's this view that we're, it's different this time because we do have this fiscal stimulus, because we have this very high savings rate, because there is the opportunity for an unleashing of demand. Um, so if that's all the case, that sounds like a really good case for why we could see uh, higher than anticipated inflation over the next couple of years. Um, so why does the Fed continue to caution that this effect is transitory? And there are sort of three main topics that I just want to, you know, point to. Number one, demographics. Um, if we go back a couple of years, um, we were really much more concerned here in the United States about deflation than inflation. And we've seen the effect of demographics in a country like Japan. Um, the overall graying of the world population is considered to be quite deflationary. And you've seen that. Um, amongst uh, in in Japan, because demographically it's a much older country, and so as we see the baby boomers retiring, um, there is just kind of less money going into consumer spending because they tend to live on a fixed income um, and don't have as much of that discretionary spend that that fuels a lot of the the services economy here in the United States. Another thing to think about is commodity prices. So if we go back to um, 2004 and 2005 and into 2006, we would have been sitting here talking about, you know, what does oil get to? Does it get to $200 a barrel? You know, copper, um, other industrial metals, precious metals. All of those commodities were experiencing meaningful or were in the midst of meaningful bull markets um, over that course of time, due in, in part both to demand, but also in, to, in the difficulty of obtaining supply. Uh, one of the biggest changes that we've seen over the last decade was the energy renaissance here in the United States. And we've talked a lot about that. Really, the energy renaissance was based in, in technology um, and the ability to extract natural gas and oil reserves um, in ways that were not available 20 or 30 years ago, um, or at least not at scale. So with that as the as the backdrop and with some of the competitive aspects of the commodities markets changing, um, if you think about the basket that the Fed looks at from an inflationary standpoint, that basket includes commodity prices and input prices. Those are likely not to um, increase in price significantly apart from sort of a, a near-term revival of demand. Uh, the one caveat to that is that we are seeing a strengthening in the manufacturing economy globally, but particularly here in the United States. And so there could be um, perhaps some near-term inflation related to this pickup in manufacturing activity that was um, more subdued in 2018 and 2019 based on um, the trade war with China. And so, you know, again, that sort of speaks to the Fed's comments on on this being transitory. And then the last thing is technology. So one of the main areas of inflation that the Fed focuses on, and frankly, probably the one that affects most businesses 
um, or businesses the most because it's it's consistent is wage inflation. And so, you know, productivity has continued to increase um, through the use of technology, which really reduces um, labor costs in general. It reduces the number of people that you need. Um, the move from on-site or brick and mortar to e-commerce, even for a portion of a business's sales, um, certainly decreases the number of people. Uh, so wage inflation, despite the fact that we were at historically low levels of unemployment prior to the pandemic, really didn't feel that it was being pressured higher. And while we have seen an improvement in the employment market over the last six months in particular, we still stand at close to six per, a little over six percent unemployment, um, and in the services industry, you know that's well north of of ten or twelve percent, depending on um, the particular sub industry that you're looking at. So, it's going to take a while for the employment market to improve to a point where we're worried about wage inflation again, and because wage inflation is that sort of consistent cost for businesses. You know, it, it speaks to the fact that there perhaps won't be as much pressure on, you know, these um, it, it kind of inflationary pre pressure as part of the basket, because if companies aren't forced and businesses, you know, whether they're small or large or not forced to pay significantly more in wages, they're not forced to raise their prices to uh, maintain their margins uh, in order to do that. And so there is a, a meaningful transmission and ripple effect to wage inflation that um, that is is worth noting. Um, the other thing that we want to talk about, or just mention at least, is that we have been experiencing inflation for some time. It's just not in this basket. Um, education and healthcare, for instance, have experienced significant inflation over the last fifteen years, um, and that doesn't seem to be changing. Although, you know, with some of the focus on limiting drug price increases um, and creating a more efficient healthcare system, as well as um, limiting uh, potentially, you know, cost increases at in-state universities and, and things like that. There, there are some efforts being made to combat that inflation, but it's certainly not like we can sit here and say prices haven't moved higher over the course of the last 10 years, because they have in certain areas. But in this basket, um, based on those factors that I just mentioned, we haven't seen the increases that we would normally have have expected, um, given the uh, the monetary stimulus after the the great financial crisis. So the overall effect of all this is that, yes, rates are moving higher. Um, they're moving higher for good reason. Economic growth and inflation and and inflation expectations based on that economic growth are a positive reason for rates to be moving higher. Um, but we also, you know, are looking at nominal GDP trending at somewhere around three and a half percent. And so therefore, that implies that rates could rise um, from, you know, where they sit today at around two and a half percent in the corporate yield, another, you know, 50 or 60 basis points without really hindering the economy, at least according to, um, you know, economists. Uh, any upside on GDP for these, you know, based on these expectations could support higher yields as well. And so we're in agreement with the Fed. Our view is that rising rates will continue to pressure equities in the short term. And we could see some of this 
dislocation that's occurring, not just because of rates, but because of the push and pull of this reflationary rebound that we're experiencing um, from a sector rotation standpoint. But we do think that these that inflation and interest rates will be normalizing into 2022. And therefore, if we're anticipating improving economic growth, we, you know, we believe that an overweight position to equities, even though it might seem um, challenging at certain periods over the course of the next month or so in particular, as rates move around, we still think that that's the appropriate positioning for investors with a long-term time horizon. Thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to our team here at Boston Private with any questions or concerns you may have. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives on the markets, the economy, taxes, estate planning, and inflation by visiting bostonprivate.com. And if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters while you're there. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. And I look forward to coming to you again next week. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.